And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Our guest mentor today is Ann Chow, the former CEO of AT&T Business. She currently sits on the board of 3M and is the lead director at Franklin Covey, as well as being a senior fellow and an adjunct professor of executive education at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. In her prior role as the first woman of color CEO in AT&T's 140-plus year history, Anne led AT&T Business, a $35 billion global operating unit comprised of 35,000 people. Anne's leadership experiences span product management, marketing, sales strategy, network engineering, and more. Anne was named a Fortune's Most Powerful Women in Business twice, Forbes's inaugural CEO next list of leaders and is a best-selling co-author of The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias. Anne holds bachelor's and master's degrees in electrical engineering and an MBA, all from Cornell University, and she is a graduate of the pre-college division of the Juilliard School of Music. Wow, Anne, I feel kind of like Wayne and Garth. I am not worthy. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. You know, I've been a longtime um, admirer and fan of yours from the very early days of my time at AT&T. So the honor is all mine. Well, you're so kind to say so. So you're a second generation American as your parents emigrated from Taiwan. And I believe you were born in Kansas, but you grew up in New Jersey. Now, I'm passionate about music and really love it. As a matter of fact, I bought eight albums just this morning. And as I told David Foster, who I interviewed you know, on this program, as someone you know, like myself with absolutely no musical talent, but a love of music, you know, gifted people like you and David really annoy me, you were accepted to the Juilliard School of Music's pre-college program at age 10 as a promising young pianist, but Later on, you know, when it came time for college, you decided to pursue engineering. Why? Why did you make the change? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Dan, for this question. This is probably one of the things that's most intriguing, probably about my background. I get this question quite a bit about what caused the shift from music to engineering. And first, I've I've got to lay the groundwork here, Dan, because I'm I was actually born in Missouri, so oh. the people, very few people who know that would have well, will not like the fact that you said Kansas. So I just thought I'd set the record straight there. And I'm a Missourian. I should have known that. That's where yeah, I am right that. now. I'm in Kansas City, Missouri at this moment. Oh, well, you see, that's yet another thing we have in common. So, <laughs> um, so back to the question. In terms of the pivot, so I started learning piano when I was about four. And it was just one of those things, you know, being a uh, dutiful, you know, daughter of immigrants. I just basically did what my parents told me to do. And then I applied and got into Juilliard when I was 10. And so I went to Juilliard for about seven years all the way through high school. It was a weekend program that supplemented your regular academic studies. And by the time I got to high school, you know, I'll admit that I started realizing that while I was good, I was not great. And the practical side of me came, started coming through. And I 
started looking into what it was going to take to become a musician for like a full-time job. Financial independence was a big objective of mine um, in terms of a motivator to go to college. And so I just had this realization that music was not going to be the path for me. And so I think like perhaps many people who are in their teenage years, I leaned on the fact that I was good at math and science, not so great at any of the other stuff for history. I, you know, I did a little research and found out that electrical engineers were one of the highest paying professions coming out of school. Mm -hmm. And nothing more exciting than that is really what made me pivot in terms of going to college. You got a bachelor's and a master's in electrical engineering, which is, it's a lot of education. And I'm sure you would have been in very high demand with that. But you tack on an MBA. Why'd you tack on the MBA? Yeah, you know, Dan, it's all about perspective. It's funny that you say that because I'm the uh, child of a father who has a PhD. So the fact that I don't have one always has me feeling a little bit unworthy. But again, I never really felt that I had the academic perseverance to do so. I was very fortunate in my early years, actually coming straight out of high school and then throughout college, to have several different actual work experiences in technical fields. And so I did some stuff in a semiconductor lab. I did some software stuff, some hardware stuff. And so fairly early on, I knew that I didn't want to be solely technically focused, that I actually wanted to learn from people. And I was actually fascinated by people dynamics. And so, you know, fortunately, I was you know already at Cornell when I had this realization. And Cornell had this wonderful, wonderful program that you could extend your experiences um, if you could get into the program. And that really fueled me to go for that MBA very much early on, um, sort of in a back-to-back-to-back fashion, because I knew that I wanted to work at the intersection of people and technology. And that was really based on the early experiences that I had in industry that were very technical in nature. Well, you started your business career at the same location, I believe, that I did 17 years after me at AT&T Longlines in Bedminster, New Jersey, which I think had the best management leadership development program that I'm aware of. I can think off the top of my head of a dozen peers, mentors, protégés that when they left AT&T, they went to be CEOs of big major companies. But you stayed there for your entire career, even after the the SBC acquisition of AT&T. As a matter of fact, I'll see Ed Whitaker in just a few days. He's being inducted into the Wireless Hall of Fame, richly deserved. But what did you gain from this broad set of experiences? I think you said you had 17 roles in 32 years. How did that help your development as a, as a leader? Yeah, so Dan, you're absolutely right. And please give Ed my best, by the way. And congrats to you, or you as well for your induction into the Wireless Hall of Fame. So that I did, in fact, start in that building, and AT&T actually just recently vacated that building. So, Dan, I know that uh, that's somewhat poignant on your part and my part. For those of us who started our careers there, it was very much an iconic building that embodied not just our company, but the industry as a whole, I think. Um, I think the value of development programs and experiences and having multiple experience in one career is really the fact that you can learn and explore so many different fields, you know, and having worked for the same company in the same industry for so long, there was really nothing that I couldn't do or experience in that one company. As you pointed out in in my um, intro and in my bio, 
I have many different functional areas of experience, right? From starting out as a network engineer uh, back in the days of long lines to moving into product management to doing international operations. And so it was really a wonderful, purposeful way that the company orchestrated for you know young people like me to have many different experiences one to expose you to the different parts of business but two i think to give you a chance to learn what you're interested in and learn what you're good at and what you're not good at in a much more purposeful way than if you were to try to do that yourself um, especially in a big company one thing that i do want to share as well dan when, you know, when somebody points out you know how could you have possibly stayed at one company for over three decades. I do point out halfway through my career, literally at the 15-year mark, AT&T was purchased by SBC. And so a long-time East Coast-based company, global company, was purchased by a you know, Texas-based regional company. And while the name of the company remained the same, at that moment when the acquisition occurred, I lost every layer of management above me and literally every sponsor and mentor I had except one. So it was basically a corporate do-over at the midpoint of my career. So it really wasn't quite like working for the same place for 30 plus years. Very interesting. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, former AT&T business CEO, Ann Chow. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com and click on list of shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Northwestern Professor Ann Chow. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, iHeart, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at TheMentorsRadio.com. Well, and like me, you know, both of us had a lot of different disciplinary choices at AT AT&T, but both of us picked sales, B2B sales as our major. Why did you pick it? Yeah, so Dan, Dan, my path to sales is probably going to be a surprise to many because we didn't willingly pick it. What I mean by that is, unlike many of my colleagues and my friends who started their career in sales, um, and in fact, in enterprise sales, B2B sales, I had several different assignments before I had my first sales role. And in fact, it was several mentors of mine, you know, a couple of assignments in who said to me, and if you really aspire to general management, look at the leadership of this company. Every senior leader in this company has been in sales, which means that they understand customers which means that they understand revenue um, and what makes this business grow. And you've got to try to get in there. And because this didn't happen until a couple of years into my career, you know, I was already at a level where it was extremely unusual for someone to try to get into sales. So, so Dan, one of my favorite career stories of quote unquote failure and success is that I actually tried to get into sales five times and was rejected five times until the sixth time over the course of three years, I finally got in. And I will fully admit, as a second-generation American, Asian American, 
I had no idea what sales was. It was never part of my aspiration. In the beginning, I interviewed for sales roles, again, because my mentors strongly suggested that I do so. After about the third rejection, I, I was more like a mission. At that point, I was extremely intrinsically motivated to get in because, of course, at that point, people were telling me that I couldn't. In fact, a very senior executive at AT&T who actually ran a sales organization, I had a one-on-one -on -one with him, and he told me that I'd never get in because I had not started there and that I was already at a level where, you know, I just could never learn how to lead salespeople because I had already, you know, I, I, I had not carried a bag. So after that, after that moment and that less than satisfactory one-on-one, -on -one, I sort of made it my mission to, um, to get into B2B sales. So thankfully, um, after a couple of years um, and many, you know, stumbles and attempts to get in, I found somebody who was willing to take a risk on me and serendipitously, I fell in love with it. My gosh. I mean, it was the major that I never thought I needed and that I would never think that I would fall in love with. And in, in hindsight, Dan, as you know, I wound up spending over half of my in, uh, in B2B sales. And I, um, I loved it. I still love it as a profession, even to this day. Well, it's interesting. One of my protégés, John Ledger, had never been in sales. And I got him in as a division branch manager, never having been in sales. I had to go to my boss's boss and get on my knees to let him come in and, and work for me in that job because I thought he had a lot of potential in the business. And you're exactly right. It's difficult to be a great executive officer without ever carrying a bag. I agree with you. The other thing about AT&T's management development program, which I got a lot out of, is you learn to manage large groups of people, you know, gradually larger groups as you as you move throughout your career. Now, you, you've co-authored a book, mm -hmm. The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias. And I'll quote one thing in the book. It says, conscious biases are beliefs we have simply decided are facts, regardless of the evidence. For example, we prefer to hire salespeople who are extroverted, even though there's no link one way or the other between extroversion and sales success. I think that's one of the things you, you and I probably learned in, in sales training that actually listening is by far the most important. Mm -hmm. So that was conscious bias. Can you describe what unconscious bias is? Yeah, absolutely. So Dan, thanks for pointing out this, this project, which I was so blessed to work on as a project for Franklin Covey, co-authored with Pamela Fuller and, and Mark Murphy. So let me just start by saying that to be human is to have bias. And that is exactly how we start the book. You know, I think bias is one of these topics that it's a word that can leave some people uncomfortable. And what bias is, right, is, is a preference or a prejudice, a leaning towards something, someone, somewhere. And we all have bias. You know, it can be good, bad, or neutral. What unconscious bias is, are those beliefs, those preferences, those longings, those leanings, those prejudices that sit beneath the surface. They are biases that we have that have been shaped by our experiences from how we were raised to who we spend time with today, to the media we watch and listen to, to what we read. Um, and you know, our biases are continually being shaped. Our unconscious biases are those biases that we're not really fully aware of. And so they are guiding our behavior. They guide our thoughts. 
They influence our decisions. They influence our words and our actions. And we may not even be aware of them. And, you know, the reality is, is that um, because they are a fact of life, they are a fact of humanity and, and people, it's one of those, you know, unconscious bias is one of those critical topics, in my view, that we as leaders must, you know, must manage and be aware of. So how can individuals kind of assess and discover their own unconscious bias? And how does bias detract from team performance and and what can leaders do about it? The first part of your question is, uh, how can people become aware of their unconscious biases because they are unconscious? I think that, you know, the, um, the number one thing I think people can do is learn and keep an open mind and learn not only by what you read and what you listen to and what you hear, because to, you know, frame ourselves in our own echo chambers, even inadvertently, it's really to surround yourself with people who are very, very different than you. And that's really one of the most foundational steps to help you surface your unconscious bias to consciousness. And then you can really start with the real work of reframing what those biases actually are. You know, it's interesting. I took a flight a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I was getting on a flight between O'Hara and Chicago and, and South Bend. And I'm getting on the plane. And I look at the person sitting and He's sitting in the window seat, and I'm going to get into the aisle. And I'm, of course, in a pressed shirt and a Brooks Brothers blazer. And the guy in the seat, you know, he's wearing shorts and a T-shirt. He's got both legs are tattooed, both arms, his neck. And he's looking at me. I'm sure he's thinking, that's what's wrong with America. I'm kind of thinking the same thing. And I sit down, and I just start telling him a story of how hard it was to catch the flight. And we just started laughing. And we had this great kind of conversation on the flight. But you could tell the immediate reaction at the beginning is we both had, you know, we both, I think, had unconscious bias toward the other one, just based upon the way we looked. Absolutely. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Ann Chow, discussing the benefits of getting a broad set of experiences during one's career. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on any of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Ann Chow about unconscious bias. So, Ann, what impact does unconscious bias have on teams' performance, and what can leaders do about it? Yeah, no, Dan, thank you. And thanks for sharing just that you know, very simple example when you were on the um, just recently, and I, I want to piggyback on your little story there because you're so right that many of our biases are formed by sight, right? In actuality, while we have so many different senses, um, sight is the one that shapes many, many, many of our thoughts and biases. In fact, uh, you know, about 80% of them are shaped by our sight. So if you can imagine if that gentleman that you were next to are on the same team and you showed up for the same meeting, right? And, you know, you had to partner with each other. You would not have naturally gravitated to each other simply because of what your preconceived biases were about him and the way he was dressed and looked and his about you, right? And so bias and the reframing of unconscious bias especially is such an imperative for leaders of all kinds, no matter whether you're in a business, you're in a nonprofit, 
you know, you're part of a PTO, a community church or otherwise, because biases exist about every facet of who we are. And it's really not until we as leaders, as, as people can help people work to understand them. And the way that, you know, the way that I would recommend doing so is really all about a deep respect for the individual and, you know, working on really building that trust foundation, which is key for every meaningful relationship. And of course, the highest performing teams are assembled by trusted, valued relationships. So I think the first step to reframing unconscious bias is you as a leader have got to tell your own story and you've got to understand your own set of, of biases and work to surface them. Now, you know, if, if you take me as an example, I'm a second generation Asian American, as we've established, I identify as female, I'm an old Gen Xer, I'm a mother. And um, with that, you know, I, you know, I had a wonderful education with that and with my background, um, you know, comes, you know, incredible privilege, right? And so I tend to have, you know, a bias about what education may be. And certainly before I entered the workforce, I did not have, I would say, a fulsome respect for how education can come in many different ways. And it really wasn't until I had an opportunity to support a very diverse group of people. Um, and you actually referred to this, Dan, earlier about, about your management development program experience in your large team assignment. It really wasn't until my large team assignment where I came to truly embrace and understand others who didn't have the same kind of educational background as me. And in fact, I found that their lived experiences were much more practical and much more meaningful in contribution to the business than mine, mine was at that early age of, I think I was 25 at the time when I had that role. And so it really is important for leaders to take on that ownership of helping teams unpack their bias, both as individuals, but also as a team, to have the team find some common ground. To do so though, Dan, means that you've gotta be vulnerable as a leader. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions about this kind of work is that you know if you're vulnerable you're weak i actually think the opposite is is true if you're vulnerable you're actually being courageous and you're actually demonstrating strength because you're admitting that you don't know anything or you don't know everything and that you're willing to consider in fact you're willing to embrace and wanting to embrace surrounding yourself with with people ideas thoughts perspectives experiences that are very different than yours because they will elevate the whole of the collaborative effort. They'll elevate innovation, they'll elevate effectiveness, and they'll elevate efficiency of the team as a whole. And so mm. those are just some of my thoughts. You can tell I'm, I'm super passionate about the topic. And I, and I will say, Dan, that you know, when somebody asks me, and how, you, you know, how did you have the career that, uh, that you have or you're having, you know, I say to them that one of the keys to my success has been this approach to inclusive leadership, which I think is the kind of the overall category of what I think this work is in the context of leadership. This is Dan Hesse, and you're listening to The Mentors Radio, and we are talking with former AT&T business CEO, Ann Chow. So Ann, you've described it really from the point of view of the leader, but what if you're, we'll call it a lower level person, like even early in your career, and you're facing bias? Were there any qualities that you had that think 
were helpful to you in, in, in moving up or techniques for dealing with bias when you face it? Yeah, Dan, this is such a perceptive question because oftentimes, you know, privilege, right, which is invisible to those who have it, unconscious bias is invisible often to, um, to those who are sort of wielding it, right? And so what I learned early, early on in my career was to not take personal offense in any given situation. You know, you might imagine when I started, when I started my corporate career in the early 90s, um, it was not necessarily normalized that you could speak up or push back really hard on certain things. And so I became sort of this student of, of people dynamics and student of relationships. The way that I, um, that I overcame bias, and I, I would be naive to say, Dan, that I don't face bias. Um, I do. And I do to this day. You know, one of the, uh, one of the favorite stories that I tell is you know, one of the common questions I get, and I still get it to this day, is where are you from? And in the old days, I would have answered this question when I was in my 20s, like, you know, I'm, what do you mean where I'm from? I'm from here. Right. But when that question is now asked to me, this is kind of how the dialogue goes, you know, and where are you from? Oh, I'm, I'm from Dallas. No, where are you really from? No, I'm from New Jersey. Oh, no, where are you really, really from? And I'll say, no, I was, I was born in the Midwest. But I think you're, you're wanting to ask me, what is my ethnicity? And, you know, then I go into the whole thing of how my parents are from Taiwan. And then I ask, then where are you really from? And you know, that situation has played out in countless numbers of times. And while it may be funny to some tongue in cheek, you know, it, it does happen to many of us. But what I have learned is that nine times out of 10, when somebody is asking me that question, they are not trying to be offensive. They are not trying, they are not trying to say that I don't belong. They're truly curious about what my ethnicity and my cultural background is, right? Because I look different than than perhaps they expected me to be, or I look different than I sound, or something like that. And so I think one of the best ways to overcome bias overcome bias is you know to acknowledge that it's there, to embrace it, but to attempt to use moments of bias as educational moments to move the conversation and the relationship forward. You know, in when I was younger, I will admit that I would take offense to those comments because I felt like the person was saying to me, you don't belong, like you're a foreigner, you don't, you're not from here. And of course, the truth is I am in fact from here, right? I am as American as else is. And, you know, and this is something that I've had to coach people on in terms of not assuming malintent, right? Is to, to assume positive intent and take the high road. It's always the right road. And I found that to be a very helpful tactic, if you will, to work through and, and be able to work with all different kinds of people. It's also taught me the power of language and the fact that it is so important for people, you know, at all levels, uh, but especially leaders to use extremely inclusive language so that they don't inadvertently leave somebody out. Well, I'll never live down as a Missourian getting where you're from wrong and saying Kansas. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Ann Chow, discussing bias. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now... 
back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Ann Chow about the seven C's of leadership. So, Ann, you've mentioned one of the C's, courage. Could you quickly tell us what the other six C's of leadership are? Yeah, absolutely, Dan. So this is this is purely Chow's seven C's of leadership, okay? So I'm not going to uh, pretend like this is uh, you know some big pundit point of view, but for me, I found these to be universally true of great leaders. Character and competence are foundational, so those are the first two C's. Collaboration and communication are the next two C's. Curiosity is another C. Courage, Dan, as you mentioned, which is a very common leadership trait that I think many believe are part of great leadership is the sixth. And the seventh one, um, just take a moment, is caring. This is a C that pre-pandemic was not at the top of everybody's list, but after the pandemic, you know, I think one of the most interesting shifts and in evolutions of leadership is that caring is really a, you know, and it must be an ingrained trait of great leaders. And that's just, that's not just caring for the bottom line or caring for your shareholders and investors, but it's caring for your people. It's caring for the environment. It's really caring for all of your constituents. And, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled as someone who's always believed that caring is an attribute of great leaders to see that rise even more to the forefront of, of leadership. Well, and this being the mentors radio, how important were mentors, or I think in your book, you describe allies uh, to your success? Yeah, there, there's no question, Dan. I mean, both mentors who also serve at, as allies, but you know, allies even as a separate category, mm-hmm. um, were vital to my career. You know, I think one of the things that is um, often mysterious to some, if, if you don't have a mentor, is, well, how do I get one? You know, and what I would say is that you know, a mentor-mentee relationship is a two-way street, which means that it is a true relationship. It is a trusted relationship uh, between two individuals um, who have some common purpose. That relationship is one that blossoms into something that's wonderful. I think it's also a misnomer that mentor-mentee relationships are lifelong or they last forever. That is not necessarily true. You know, I think I was one who happened to benefit from episodic or situational mentorship, you know, whether it was somebody who reached out to me because I got a new role that I, you know, that I'd never been in before and they were in my shoes previously, whether it was, you know, an old boss who reached out and we reconnected and, you know, and, and, and we just developed a, you know, a refresh relationship from there, you know, mentor-mentee relationships don't have to be that complicated. And they're truly individual based on the two individuals um, that, are, that are in them. But I think one of the most important things about you know, great mentor-mentee relationships is that they are, in fact, balanced. They're, they are two-way, right? And they're a relationship that both parties choose to invest in, which does not mean a quantity of time, but a quality of time. So, Dan, since this is the Mentors Radio, I want to just give a shout out to the infinite number of mentors that I have had over the decades and also want to give a special shout out to many of my past but also my current mentees as well. And to the point of allyship, you know, allies are people who support you in whatever that endeavor is. And certainly as a mentor of somebody, you know, I've always viewed it to be vital that I support them, not only in their job or their career, but really in the context of their life. And I think that's something that is 
different about true mentorship is that you're not just focused on the professional side of that person's life. You're really focused on helping and supporting them in the context of their life, of which their career and their job is a part of. I mean, right after this call, and I jump off to get on a board call. I'm on the board of directors of a group called the Women Business Collaborative. And what they describe my role is as a ally of her. So you don't have to be a member of the group to be a member of the group, as they say. And how do you define success? Oh, gosh, this is a this is a tough one. So first of all, um, success. And thank you, Dan, by the way, for being an ally of that collective. And you're absolutely right. None of us would be where we are if we did not have allies. And being an ally takes courage. So thank you for that. Okay, so success. What is success? Success, first of all, is individual. It is some measure of, of a accomplishment, um, a feeling of achievement, the achievement of some type of milestone. And so um, success means something unique to each person. And in addition to that, success is unique to that person at that point in their life. So if you can envision, Dan, when you were in your 20s, you know, I think back back to those days, you know, when I first started my corporate career, I thought success was something very, very specific, you know, and then as you evolve on your life, success evolves, you know, for those who may choose to become parents, once you become a parent, you know, success means something very, very different. And then I think when you're at, you know, your point in your career, Dan, or my point in my career, success yet means something um, very, very different. So it is very individual. But to me, you know, it is now very much focused um, on impact. We'll be back in a few minutes learning about the inspiring career journey of former AT&T CEO, Ann Chow. You'll find all of our show notes and links at thementorsradio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on another podcast platform, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a positive review and tell a friend about the show. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with former AT&T business CEO, Ann Chow, discussing success and happiness. So, Ann, you've told us about your definition of success. What's happiness? Yeah, so um, happiness, just like success, is also extremely subjective, right? And you know, when each of us think of our own happiness or the feeling of being happy, you know, it's something that feels good, that makes us feel good, but it's also episodic. It's also fleeting. You know, when I was younger and earlier on in my career, I thought that I needed to be successful to be happy. And as I've gotten older and hopefully a little bit wiser, I've realized that it's a little bit the other way around, right? When you know, when you're when you're happier, you know, it can enable your success much more systemically. You know, I, I reflect back on my time in sales, and there's no question that during that time, you know, when I discovered that that was a profession that I um you to use your words, Dan, wanted to major in. I fell in love with it, you know, and my passion therefore became my profession and it fueled me to want to do it more and wanted to wanted want to become the, you know, the best sales leader that I could possibly be. And so I think that one of the misnomers out there is that 
these are discrete, you know, feelings of, you know, or objectives of success or happiness. There's plenty of science out there now that shows that, you know, we are happiest, we are most satisfied as humans when we're actually helping other people. So when there's deeper meaning to, you know, to impact, you know, deeper connection to other people, that is in actuality what what drives us and what fuels us um, in terms of truly being happy and successful. You know, and I, I can certainly say from personal experience, Dan, I suspect that you would say the same is that, you know, it's really led to a place where, you know, this phase of my career is just simply filled with an immense amount of joy, right? It's, you know, choosing very purposefully the projects, the people, the organizations that you want to be part of, that you want to give back to. And it is truly a, a you know, a blend of happiness and success and joy. Well, you're clearly a, a caring person. It, it comes through. And you mentioned caring earlier as one of your seven C's in the context of the pandemic. And you led AT&T business successfully through the pandemic. Does remote work require a new kind of leader? Yeah, yeah, Dan, this is a, this is a great question. And you know, this, you know, we're, we're having this conversation at a moment in time. And so I want to I broaden the lens a little bit um, you know, as, as we wrap up our time together here. And that is, you know, the nature of work has, before the pandemic, many of us would think of work as a place that we would go to, that there was this delineation between, you know, work and our personal lives. Post-pandemic, we know that not to be true. Work is just one of the things we do, right? For many of us, it's something we choose to do. For many of us, it's something we have to do. And what leadership means in the post-pandemic world is this goes far beyond remote work, but really flexible work. And there's a debate now you know, between employers and employees. We can see it unfolding right across different industries where this, there's this debate of being back in the office. And I think that leaders now really have got to, first of all, realize that it's not going to go back to the way it was. Rather, We've now got to look at the office or workplaces and workspaces as just simply yet another tool to enable collaboration and effectiveness and high performance. Now, do you think it's going to be more difficult to develop leaders, you know, given you talked about the importance of mentors and allies in this diverse career path? Is that going to be harder to do in a remote environment? Well, Dan, you know, just like it was 10 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, the only constant we know is change, right? So what we're dealing with today is, you know, a very ever-evolving, flexible work environment that now must embrace hybrid work, right, which has heavy tones of remote work in it. You know, I'd like to assert something that I suspect you'd probably agree with, which is it is easier to develop relationships in person. Right. We also learned this through the pandemic that there's nothing more powerful than the human connection. And so there's no question that leaders must lead differently, that we have to be even more purposeful about how we and when we gather people and what our expectations are about how work must be done. This is not to say at all that mentors and mentees cannot develop relationships remotely. Certainly, it needs to be more effort that's put in there. Right. And I'm one who certainly advocates for the need for an in-person dynamic 
um, you know, in, in any work group. That is different than, however, having to show up in an office Monday through Friday or, you know, regularly throughout the week, right? I think we've just really got to be more open-minded in terms of how we think about the use of workspaces now, you know, as, as leaders and, and team members, right? With all the, with the desire to, you know, be the highest performing, highest achieving team. Well, thanks for joining us today, Anne. Really enjoyed your comments. I'm so glad our paths crossed early in your career as I enjoyed watching your groundbreaking success from afar. And I appreciate all you were doing to teach the next generation of business leaders. To our listeners, please go to thementorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us online on any device at any time on any podcast platform like Apple, Google, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, or Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. Thank you. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.thementorsradio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.